0: Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. This guy is everywhere in New Haven's ticking. Steve Winters, our guest today, he's in his third term as an alder, and there are two reasons he's everywhere. He has a bike and he goes places, so he really ticks of business, and he has the most gerrymandered Ward, I think this side of New York State, or where we're like, it has a little bit of every neighborhood. So Steve, welcome back to New Haven, uh, Dateline New Haven on WNHH. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for And you remember the out. first thing I always tell you is please get so close to that mic. You're right, almost right. touching it if okay. you could. So Ward 21 did get redrawn it did. while you were in Alder. Did it get less or more gerrymandered? I would say it got less gerrymandered. How would you describe the shape of the ward? Amoeba meets, um, I don't know, Uh, cylinder meets peanut.
1: Previously, I think it had more of like a plumber's wrench, like a pipe wrench, because it had this. um,
0: Prospect Street being the kind of handle. Yeah. Yeah. And then it
1: it had uh, this tooth that went all the way down to dickerman <laughs> Yeah, I remember. which yeah, Dickerman is, was
0: bizarre uh in which well. is
1: one block from whaley avenue <laughs> right. right to give people an idea of where that is so one block from whaley all the way up to west hazel which is where the police academy is so almost in hamden and then it went over the hill to this is the part people are shocked by all the way to uh Orange and Humphrey. Really? Orange and Humphrey? Orange and Humphrey. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. So, you have so a we're talking
0: of, Prospect Hill. We're talking East Rock. A little, little bit of GoFo. We're talking about Dixie. We're talking about New Hallville. Yep. And That's then, a lot of different neighborhoods in one ward when we have 30 in the city.
1: And in the middle of all of that, uh, Science Park, which is like oh. this, you know, uh, bubbling cauldron of development. Activity. A new kind of city emerging. Yeah. And
0: is that still in your ward?
1: Yeah. So the changes to the ward... Uh, the folks uh, between Gough Street and Dickerman, so like St. Martin's townhouses mm-hmm. and some of the other uh, residences around there, those are going to go back to Ward 2. Oh, you said they, going
0: to, so not until next election.
1: Not until the next, yeah, not until the next aldermanic I know, election. how could that not have been part of Ward 2?
0: I wouldn't ask, you weren't yeah, there. Yeah, I wasn't
1: there. around, but I think the general logic was that population had to shift east because there that was big, a big increase in Fairhaven.
0: But then and they so, always decide, I want this voter or myself <laughs> to remain in the ward. I know that's always part of it, yeah.
1: But, so that, yeah, that'll go back to ward two, which I think was, makes sense and helps make ward two more whole. Mm-hmm. That's been Alder Douglas's stomping grounds for a while. And then the other thing that, it, you know, is, again, really sad to lose the folks in St. Martin's. Uh, we've had a lot of issues over there, but we've also made a lot of progress uh, and then, similarly, at uh, Prescott Bush, which is the formerly housing authority, now uh,
0: County Street, yeah, County Street. That's kinda, not housing authority anymore. Well, it's
1: I say formerly housing authority because technically it's one of these RAD deals, these
0: um, rental assistance
1: rental assistance deals where they've sold the building to a private uh, private ownership, but they maintain. Uh, through glendower group they their nonprofit, they maintain the management of the building but there were you know there were a lot of changes that took place
0: When and how did that work out for the tenants and why'd they do that you
1: know, they there were things like the new the new owners wouldn't let them have you know furniture on their balconies they kept trying to clamp down on that things like that first they said they couldn't have any grills on the property then they said they could have one when did this years. happen that was, it, you know, this has been. This was an o, uh, Obama program to try to get private capital into public housing stock,
0: and to have them buy existing private projects rather than build new ones.
1: Yeah, so get. get Is pri- that
0: good? Do we want private owners of public housing?
1: I, uh, I, I don't think it's our a first resort, and. I, I wasn't there when the Obama administration the made you, the you decision. Didn't, you didn't tell but, Barack,
0: hey, Barack, I'm a little worried about the unintended consequences of. Yeah, that
1: I think like looking back on Obama, I think he gets he gets a, a hard rap on things that were probably difficult compromises that he didn't want to make. That's how I look at it. Like mm-hmm. this was probably a decision where he said like, I really don't want to do this, but you know Congress isn't giving me any more money for mm. uh, housing in general, and we've got. We've got folks who are living in conditions they shouldn't be living in. So, so I how up... best
0: to make the limited resources. Yeah. And so I've been into that when you talk about Glendower Group. That's a nonprofit, as you said, the housing Authority has. They build stuff and they manage stuff. And they kind of generate money for the housing authority. I thought that was one way, as you say, in navigating a, a larger environment you don't control, funding environment, and rulemaking environment as a federally charged housing authority. They found ways in in that imperfect world to become financially stable
1: yeah yeah i think that they and i had that
0: work for the tenants do you think overall prescott bush did they work out those issues i guess you came along years because you got elected five years ago was 2017 so that was already after obama was gone and these issues it sounds like we're still there
1: yeah i think the i think their rad conversion happened shortly after that uh so it happened well like right as i was becoming starting as the older person. And I think there were things that got redone, you know, like the roof and windows and things like that. But then there are things that didn't, uh, like the laundry machines were this huge pain point for people at Prescott Bush for years because all these things got replaced. But so it's things...
0: seniors who live there. So they got to have well, laundry.
1: It's, it's, it's mostly seniors, but, uh, another challenge for the, for that building and other housing authority Buildings is that it uh, because of the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, it's no, it's no longer just seniors. There's also uh, folks with disabilities, and that's so not recent.
0: I think that was during the first Bush administration, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's where... not,
1: it's not recent, but it's uh, these the turnover. There's been more turnover recently for the people where, with
0: disabilities.
1: Yeah, so you've got a building that maybe it was mostly are almost entirely elderly folks. Now there are some younger folks. And the uh, issue
0: there, as you know, is that substance abuse is defined as a disability. So we had this lot yeah. in Fairhaven with the row housing, R-O-W-E, not row housing, like what it looked like. And uh, a lot of the seniors don't feel safe because they feel that a lot of younger people who are involved in the drug trade are right there on the premises with them. Has that been an issue with Prescott Bush?
1: Uh, it has, and we have been meeting with... Uh, glendower and the housing authority and we've we've come up with a plan uh and you know it involves having some you know private security uh there because we we needed a way to help like you said help residents in the building feel safe in their own homes
0: that's a guy Uh, i i see this team a lot when i talk to you steve because you bring such idealism and a whole wide range of issues to and concerns to your job so i'm guessing tell me if i'm wrong that it's very important to you that people struggling with addiction get help and get places to live. And it's very important to you that seniors have safe places to live in public housing where they feel comfortable. And here's a case where they clash, right? You want the seniors to not can feel comfortable with the young people with drug addiction and the trade in their housing. And the people there need a place to go. How do you navigate that as a, as an alder?
1: Well, I, I give the housing authority a lot of credit on this. And that the meetings we've had, they've really been firm in saying... Look, you know, we, this is our charge and we, we're here to help everybody. And for folks who are having issues, we're going to do everything we can to try to get them counseling and services. Um, so they, they have set a good tone with folks who are upset about this.
0: And it's still hard for seniors. I lived here a long time. I don't feel safe now. It's not that I'm against people who are struggling, but even if you're doing everything right, my life isn't as good as it was.
1: Yeah. Especially if you, if you've got, uh, traffic in the building, trans transactions in the building, drug use in the building.
0: It's, is that so is that also taken out of your ward now?
1: Yeah, so that that if you looked at ward twenty-eight,
0: uh, It's Beaver Hills, it's the other side of Hill House High School.
1: Right. So it was Alder Abduciber, and now it's Alder Ficklin. Uh, you know, they had like a, a nice kind of rectangular shape there, except for Prescott Bush. So again, we're trying to rationalize
0: that. So whose is it now? Yours or theirs?
1: Prescott Bush will be in Ward 28.
0: And that's where it was when I started hearing about Prescott Bush when Elaine Braffman was the Ward 28, Alder from Beaver Hills on that other side in the uh, 80s. So mm. I guess things have a way of coming back full circle. <laughs> what got added to your ward?
1: That's a great question. Uh, well, so the, the, the other thing that got subtracted was the part of the East Rock section between Whitney and Orange. So those blocks... Hmm. are gonna be going into ward seven. That makes sense. Uh which does make sense.
0: And the it, incredible shrinking ward. So you're not a plumber anymore. What are you gonna be instead of a plumber's hand, tool?
1: I don't I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's sort of like a like stretched out Pac Man maybe. There's still kind of this <laughs> like mouth that opens up um around ward around ward twenty. But the great thing about that is, you know, right now in the uh in the even years, folks are voting at four different polling locations. So you've and that's because the,
0: the state yeah, districts don't got, match our local districts.
1: Roland Lamar and Senator Looney, for the folks who are all the way over past That's
0: terrible, because it's hard enough to get people to vote, and this is one of your big issues. It's so confusing. They have to go different places every year, yeah. and they really don't have a war. Is that going to change at all with the street district? Yeah, so— Is that one of the goals? Yes,
1: yeah, so I think if—I if, mean, there's still—the uh, polling locations that have to be reset by the registrar, but I think it's an opportunity for those folks on the east side of Whitney— to have one one polling location. So you think it will
0: be down to three now?
1: I think so. Yeah.
0: So what'd you get added?
1: Uh, we picked up a uh, the blocks on between Winchester and Prospect uh, from Munson down to the, like the Whale that kind mm-hmm. of section of Dixwell. So
0: it's expending something that did exist that was kind of your area. Because on the other further down prospect you went down to Winchester.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's So is this better?
0: Does it make more sense?
1: I think it makes more sense. Yeah. The ward is more compact. We should have people voting at fewer polling locations in the even mm-hmm. in the even years. And you have less of these things that really bug people where they're looking across the street at somebody, at a neighbor who they talk to all the time who's in a different ward. There'd be a yeah. little less of that.
0: That's kind of interesting. We're talking to Steve Winters, the alder from Ward 21. Um, he's in his third term. And you really have both sides of prospect, but now you're more on the side that is featured in a new book by Nicholas David Alcott called The Other Side of Prospect, about how that's a dividing line between elite Yale on one side and hard-hit New Hallville by a lot of social challenges on the other side, urban challenges. Did you read the book?
1: I haven't read the book.
0: I would like to.
1: Uh, get my hands. I on I recommend the copy. it. It's really good. Yeah. I'll see if
0: we have. Look, before we freely, let's see if we have a copy around.
1: That would be awesome. Yeah. I mean, it feels like it hits close to home because then again, it
0: you're on the ground, so you see it all the time. Steve, with you. one thing I want to talk about, Steve, and think about all. I love talking about all the issues in town because you get involved both on the ground and very constituent-oriented issues. You mentioned Saint Martin uh, townhouses when they had flooding and people had to be really coded, and they're fixing it. You were right in that. We just talked about Prescott Bush, which I wasn't aware about. I'd love to see us write about about what happens when that ownership gets transferred and more of the younger people come in with disabilities in a senior housing facility. You also came to the job before you were an alder, involved in a number of broader issues, national, international issues that you that you were an activist on, and on, a, on a lens of how we can affect them, whether it's voting reform and democracy, environment and criminal justice reform. And I've noticed that you've found ways to incorporate that into being an alder. And I wanted to ask you what extent you, that's been satisfying. When I want to start with voting for him, You were there on the street in your ward with people you go to every election day and send newsletters to all year and go to community meetings with. And you said, vote for early elections because we had a state constitutional amendment. It got approved by voters in a referendum. How did being an alder affect your advocacy on that, both in how you saw the issue and how you sold the issue?
1: I think being an alder it, like you were saying it exposes you to all this action on the ground the nitty-gritty the details in people's lives so even going to to do get out the vote work ahead of the election i met many people who said well what you know older folks who said well what if it's what if it's snowing that day mm-hmm. A- am i going to be able to make it to the polls or uh oh well my you know my son is blind and uh i'm worried i'm worried that that I'm not going to have someone to be able to drive him, uh, that day. So all these, uh, there's all these logistical issues when it actually comes down to voting on election day. And for some of us, those are very easy to overcome. But you know, if you're working multiple jobs or you, or you're struggling with a disability or you're older, having some flexibility, uh, having that option, that was, I think the key message to
0: drive home. You already believed that before. You When did you get involved with the issue?
1: I first got involved with this issue in 2018, really. So you were an alder. That's one that,
0: unlike some of the other voting reform, that sort of became more of an issue around then.
1: No, it was a little bit before becoming an alder because there were some of the folks who were working on the national popular vote legislation, mm-hmm. uh, particularly this activist Paula Baccalini out of Glastonbury, who every time we would talk to someone about, hey, you know, we're not electing the president by popular vote, she would say, and... We also need to be working on ways to strengthen our democracy by strengthening our voting systems. And I think we both viewed those issues, the national popular vote and early voting. So
0: did being an alder and encountering these get out the vote challenges affect your thinking or did you already think that and it just reinforced your thinking, gave if, you a way to talk about it?
1: It just made it much, yeah, much more real. It was like,
0: And then also when it came time, so when you worked on statewide campaigns before, um you would kind of go to a lot of places, right? Does this concentrate your work as an alder since you have, how many constituents do you have? Like 2,000? Uh, each 4, ward
1: is like a little less than 5,000. Oh, 5,000. So is
0: this yeah. now concentrate how you do your work? Like I'm going to intensely get to know people in this one ward through my elections and issue advocacy for the ward. And this does that then narrow where you concentrate your work on an issue like early elections?
1: Uh, yeah, I think it. I think it helps fo- bring things into focus to see which, what problems are people, are people really crying out for help on. What, where do people really need help?
0: And did it ever t- convince you the other way, that you looked on a broadway at an issue and then working in War Twenty One on the ground, you thought, oh, I kind of overrated this versus a different issue.
1: Uh, I mean, I think. I think like the national popular vote thing is like such a long term goal. <laughs> and
0: it's- this, so our listeners know, that's where enough states agree in a compact that they're going to honor the results of the popular vote. Even so, a lot of times you can win by a lot in one state that has a lot of popular electoral votes, but then barely lose in another. And you're running for president with a very small population state like Montana, and it comes out equally for you know, or not equally, but close, much closer than is representing the population.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I think, like on a day to day, most people aren't thinking about that. But then, as an elections approach, people will say, like, "Why?" Oh, wait, bother? I had it
0: wrong. It's more the margins, right? So, like, if once it's like winner take all in a state, right? All the electoral votes go. So if you win California by a little, you get all those popular vote, all yep. those electoral votes. But yeah, you, exactly. So yeah.
1: there's, there's, yeah. You know, look at <laughs> President Trump won the electoral college vote, but lost the.
0: So where are we on that? Has answer. Connecticut voted to join that compact? Connecticut did vote. To so join your work's that. done on that. Yes. <laughs> okay. It is. What's next? Ranked choice voting. Is that the next big one? We've had you here on that.
1: Yeah. I think ranked choice voting is going to be a, uh, important issue at the general assembly this session because, uh, you know, because of the work that Oz Griebel and Monty Frank did. Right. They got, uh, you
0: wrote in your newsletter, you, you voted for, Governor Lamont, on the Democrat line, but on the Grebel-Frank party, which I would argue is not a good name for a party, they um, they act like people knew who that was when they got 5%, you know, like 0.5% yeah. vote. But in any case, they they got the endorsement based on Lamont saying he'll support exploring ranked choice voting or support ranked choice voting. He,
1: As I understand he said he would introduce legislation to uh, enact some forms of ranked choice voting. Oh,
0: not just to study it? Because everyone talks about starting with that, the study.
1: No, I, I understood it that's not how I understood it. Uh,
0: oh, you think that's going to happen? Because like Democrats aren't so big on it.
1: I think it can happen in, in some situations. Yeah. So like if you look at Maine, which is like really hot on ranked choice voting, they've instituted ranked choice voting for some offices, but where there are constitutional issues, they're working on, on other offices. So they've twice now elected Jared Golden, one of their Congress. uh, congresspeople using ranked choice voting. And in both elections, you know, he had like 48 or 49%. And then when they looked at the third party candidates, second choices.
0: And that's how they stopped getting that extremist Pepe LePew guy, Le Paul, what is Exactly. This was a, exactly. what, this was a response yeah.
1: to Governor Governor LePage who won his first with election. With a minority with
0: like, in a three way, but he, he governed like an old Trump. Yeah.
1: yeah, it was something like 40, he won with like 40% of the vote. Yeah. Uh, my uh, family's back in Rhode Island. My parents are back in Rhode Island their Democratic primary was a three-way race uh, and the winner won with ju- like just over 30% of the vote. And he's and we've,
0: we've done a whole show with you and, and yeah. other advocates saying how you could not have to vote for lesser of two evils. If your vote can count for your person, then if they don't win, it can then count for your next choice. Yep. John Stefano's view in retirement, the former mayor is that we kind of have a system a little bit like that in New Haven now, since so many people Democrats, but you have this big group of independents. You kind of run in a primary if there's a truly contested mayoral election. You get a lot of candidates, and then two survive, and one of them runs independently in the third. He says, why don't we just go to nonpartisan elections, maybe two-round elections that way. What would you think about that?
1: I still think it's better to have
0: one election uh one one moment
1: where everyone turns out and voices their preferences mm. with ranked choice voting, you can say, Here's my first, here's my second, here's my third. Uh look at what's happening in Georgia. Does it really make sense to have yeah. two elections back to back in Georgia? I wonder what would happen with that because the
0: libertarian that was in Warnock and, and uh, Walker, neither of them got fifty percent. It was really close. Warnock had a little more, but the libertarian candidate had a couple percent. You think those would have gone to Walker?
1: I think it I think enough of them would have gone. Uh, to Senator Warnock to put I think him it was over. a
0: thirty-five thousand vote margin. It's incredible. Yeah,
1: it's razor thin. Uh, but Alaska, you know, Alaska elected. That's how there. we didn't.
0: That's how we didn't get Sarah Palin. That's
1: yeah. how we missed Sarah Palin, and that's you know, I'm not a huge uh, Senator Murkowski fan, but compared to the alternative, I'll. I'll take it.
0: We're talking to Steve Winter, alder in New Haven, 21st Ward, and for more than a decade now, an activist on a lot of progressive city and statewide issues, including the environment. And as an alder, have you found ways to take your concern for the environment and bring it home to local issues?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The board uh, has environmental justice as one of its legislative priorities. Uh, So I, I definitely share that, that interest. And, the board also passed a climate emergency resolution, which the New Haven climate movement has also brought to Does the- any of that have teeth?
0: Do we have to do anything because of either of those?
1: Uh, the well, as a follow so that was saying like, look, this climate climate change is real. This is important. We need to start focusing on what to do about it. And then we passed a subsequent resolution, the Board of Alders did about fleet electrification and building electrification. And that came up
0: the other night, right? So there was a hearing at the Board of Alders. Was it the Finance Committee? It was. And we're buying new police cars. Are they electric vehicles?
1: Uh, No. The proposal before the Board of Alders would be to buy uh, Dodge SUVs. What? Eight Dodge SUVs. For who?
0: For supervisors?
1: For supervisors, for the uh, Bureau of... uh, investigations identification identification thanks mm-hmm. uh who have a bunch and then in that case i think it, you know having a larger vehicle if you have all this equipment for identification
0: are there electric vehicles that are larger
1: uh yeah there are there are uh
0: there are and and this was some of the conversations. This, i've seen The super, why do supervisors need a big old car like that
1: yeah i think that's a i think that's a good question i mean i think there's i think the you know le, logistical argument as well they're going to be in the weather but so are all the you know so are all the other squad cars uh you know the sedans so i don't yeah i think that in some cases like with the bureau of identification where you're lugging around a lot of equipment that makes sense uh, but i think smaller so what's vehicles, gonna
0: happen with that did you guys vote to approve it
1: well it was part of a larger package including uh the bulk of the money was for fire engines uh, three, three fire engines and fire hydrants. So we've got a lot of rusted and just dis- non-functional fire hydrants in the city, mm-hmm. uh, over a hundred. And so the board did vote to approve that. And, uh, the chair of the committee, Alder Marchand, you know, said he would be following up about the idea of looking at an electric vehicle or a plug-in hybrid, you know, as a test case. And I think that if you look at what for some, what
0: for these supervisors, yeah, for the police. I still don't get why that needs a test case. Don't we know they're just driving around? What do they need some big old vehicle for?
1: I think I mean I think with these with something like this, it does make sense to get to get a couple of vehicles to test things out, just because of the the duty cycle of a police vehicle. You know, these mean are, it
0: lasts longer if it's bigger. What's that? Mean it lasts longer if it's bigger. The, what's uh, a duty cycle?
1: Oh, I'm saying like when you if you drove to work today you probably drove downtown and or somebody I took a bus <laughs> I, mean, I walked actually yeah. okay I, I i took my bike but someone who drove downtown they probably drove to work and they're parking their car for eight hours and they're driving home a police patrol vehicle uh you know is going to be in use almost constantly throughout the day so the, you know there are questions with so they weigh out more
0: you want them to be our electric vehicles Less sturdy? Do they last less than no? It's more big ass SUVs. If you're
1: if you're running them around constantly, you know how and where do you recharge them? Is oh, like, where to recharge is one question. But I think for a uh. for like a supervisor, like a district manager, I think that's less of an issue because they're not, you know, they're not necessarily necessarily out constantly. And even for the even for the guys on patrol, we know that they spend a, a lot of time writing reports about so why incidents. can't we
0: invest in twice as many for a longer term although i guess you want updated models and have half of them charging and half of them on the road
1: yeah i think i think that uh you probably won't need twice as many but you probably will need some in rotation but those are the kind of things where if you got a few to try to try this out uh you could you know you could start to figure out okay where are we doing this but i think that well two things one you do need to invest in some charging infrastructure because if you have the right charging infrastructure you can get most of your charge back in like 15 or 20 minutes mm. and so that's not as big a deal right if you go to let's say we put charging stations in all the substations
0: mm. somebody goes, I have right there for the public too
1: yeah you could yeah you could have them available these substations yeah you could have them available to the public you could have them available to other city city departments so if you put in these charging stations at neighborhood substations, uh, an officer could come there, write a couple reports, juice up on their battery, and then they're they're good for the you know the the rest of the day potentially. So New York City just bought 184 uh, Ford Mach E vehicles, and the majority of those are going to be going to the police.
0: Where are they going to charge them?
1: I don't... Actually, it's a good question. I don't know what their <laughs> what their charging plan is.
0: Is your day job, Steve, still working in environmental activism? Yes, it so is. So what are you doing these days?
1: Uh, well, one... I just want to say one more thing okay. about EVs, because like you said, we'll probably need to get a few more of them up front, and they are still more costly than gas vehicles. Like the Mach-E... The police department's talking about spending $50,000 on uh, these Dodge SUVs. The Mach-E's that New York is getting is 60000 but the city did a, a utilization study and other cities have done studies of vehicles that they've bought. And you're going to make that money back in the first like three to five years on gas, oil changes, filters. Mm. You don't have any of that. There's enormous savings. There's a real fiscal argument to the reduced operations and maintenance expenses of moving to electric vehicles. So even though you're in- investing that money up front, you're, you're going to make it back, uh, really really quickly uh and and definitely recoup it over the life of most vehicles so um
0: and what is your day job
1: uh, i've been working at a company called catalyst cooperative you did
0: that before you've been there for a while right? yeah
1: for a while and um we gather information about the electricity system uh most of it published by the federal government so places like the environmental protection agency or the energy administration energy information administration so they publish all this stuff about you know, the, the power plant on the harbor, how much does it, you know, how much does it pollute? How much electricity does it generate? How old is it? What kind of pollution control equipment does it have? Um, and we, we kind of clean all that up. It's kind of a mess when it, when the federal government publishes it. And once it's cleaned up, we republish it. And then advocacy organizations like the Rocky Mountain Institute, what it formerly called now called RMI, uh, or Energy Innovations, they're like a national think tank on energy issues can take that processed information and it's ready to go for them to say hey you know we could move the grid to all you know all clean energy by 2035 or we could shut down coal plants in these so states. are you
0: a nonprofit?
1: uh we're kind of a hybrid we're a we're a worker cooperative we're a worker-owned business
0: how do you make revenue people pay you for their reports
1: uh, yeah, so some of it is, is grants that are run through a fiscal sponsor, um, so building this underlying infrastructure, this sort of data resource, if you will, uh, that other organizations use, and then other projects are you know, working with uh, an advocacy organization or a public policy group that wants to take the data and try to answer a question. think uh, so
0: in general, I think you'd want to put the data out for everyone to have free. Every, all the data, but it sounds free. like sometimes it's a very tailored job. Someone hires you to help to go further with it, so maybe you could charge them on that.
1: We're always trying to make the data more accessible, but y- even if you make it really easy for someone to, you know, download, play around with in Excel, there's still going to be more questions they're going to want to answer that they're going to want. So,
0: what have you concluded recently about that? As you could, can we go to wind power? Is that it realistic? Like Bridgeport, you are trying to do in Bridgeport, and their parent company, Everdrill, is doing. Cause it's such a big way in Spain. Do you think, uh, you know, different parts of the country need different kinds of power? How quickly can we move to renewables, and what kind do you see on the horizon?
1: Yes, I think the short answer is yes. We can we can move an enormous amount of our electrical generation in the near term to wind and solar. Uh, and offshore wind is a is a great investment for Connecticut to be making. Uh, solar, I think, is an area where Connecticut has more work to do. Uh, there's states that have done a lot more solar on roofs and there's states that have done a lot more community solar so if you can't put solar on your roof you can buy a share mm. of panels i'm so ignorant about stuff we have solar at our house
0: yeah and i don't quite understand why we send it back to the grid so it loses a lot of the power there we sell it to them wholesale and payback <laughs> rates that are retail to get it back from them it just seems so inefficient is this because the state says they're I remember Malloy, the old governor, had something to do with setting up that system. Is that because the state says we have a, gen- we have a public interest in this regulated utility monopoly, whether it's you, are here, or Eversource, other part of the state, existing and having enough revenue that they're losing from these solar customers that will be inefficient with energy and avoid some of the cost savings and protections against mass blackouts so that we could keep this big utility going?
1: Well, when you when you feed your solar energy back into the grid when you're producing and you're not using it in your house, there's not a big energy loss there.
0: There's not a big. Well, it has to go down the wires and then back to me. We don't use any of it in our house. UI gets everything we generate and then they send back to us. Correct? No,
1: no. If you're if you're if you're using it, uh, if you're if you're generating electricity from the sun through the panels, that's going to come out of the panels and uh, come down into an inverter, which turns it into kind of regular old electricity. I thought
0: you need a battery for that if you're going to use it in your house.
1: No, no. So that's, that's, it's first going to stop in at your house and say like, Hey, does Paul, does Paul Bass need to use this electricity? Mm. And if, if you're good, if all your lights are off or whatever, then it's going to, it's going to go back out onto the grid.
0: But they credit it to us at a wholesale price, meaning they don't, I mean, they get it from us for the wholesale and then charge us the retail. They make a profit off us on that.
1: So the way that net metering works in Connecticut is uh, you you get credited your full retail amount for ev- for all the kilowatt hours that you consume. So if you consume 100 in a year and you generate 100 uh, from your solar, then you're going to get the full credit for that. The full retail, like 20 cents for a kilowatt hour for that. If... You produce even more, so if you consume 100 but you produce 200, that extra 100 you produced, you're going to get a credit on your bill at the wholesale rate. And that does speak to what you're saying about like it's it's an immense benefit to be connected to the electric grid. Some
0: people think oh, like, so we're oh, paying well, for that benefit by having yeah it yeah. So still. when this, but when what, this, what if we had batteries instead, so that we didn't have to be collected in the connected to the grid, and so that if we ever were like Ukraine and getting bombed, that or if their hackers get into a regional electric distribution system, we wouldn't have to worry because it's decentralized.
1: Yeah. So uh, we, you, you still want to be like think about your life right now with with you and like you, uh, you get all kinds of joy from your family, right? And and your kids and your grandkids. Um, but that doesn't make you want to separate yourself from your friends and your broader community.
0: You, oh, we, oh, we definitely want to be part of society where we'll help each other and get the benefits of mass work of stone soup or from paying altogether for roads and bike lanes and police officers and schools. Right. I'm not sure energy is the same thing because it's a private utility that's looking for ways to make money off of us and return profit to shareholders and to centralize everything. I'm not sure centralized power works the same way as having a government that's part of we to make all our lives richer together.
1: I th- I think it's more like a road network. It's like if if we want to be, you want to be part of the city. Right. We don't want private roads. Network. We you want don't public want private road. roads. Yeah, exactly.
0: But they're not and public it, utility grid. It's a private utility grid.
1: Well, it's it's publicly regulated, right? Sort of. Yeah. So there's a there are maximum there are maximum rates of returns that they're allowed.
0: So it's so they bought energy at a really bad price a few months ago. So now they're going to, rather than have their shareholders who take risks on their investment make a little less profit, we're going to pay record prices for our electricity this winter. Yes, is that that we or is that they running us?
1: I think it's I think it's both. Uh, There are states where so there are states where the full cost of fuel gets passed on to consumers. So if the uh, electric utility is you know using a lot of natural gas and prices spike the consumers foot the whole bill and there's some states where there's risk that's shared where the you know the
0: consumers maybe. and if it's a regulated private industry how could we justify them not having risk yeah so i think like i think with uh, it's not up to you. I'm not mad at you. You're not, you're not making decisions for Pura. I'm just saying, you know, Public Utility Regulatory Agency. I'm just saying, I mean, I know you're on the good side. I'm just saying, I don't understand it. Like Wallingford, if you want to really look at your point that we want to be connected with our family, connect our community, and use all our resources together to have us all protected with a common grid, a common government, that's in Wallingford. They have a municipally owned utility. They're not part of UI or Eversource, Correct. So they pay less for their electricity, and it never goes down because there's no outside, supposedly regulated private industry that's pushing all the risk onto us while they push all the profit to them and make decisions in Spain. Am I missing something there? Well, What's the real idea of your we be cooperatively owned municipal power?
1: Yeah, I think in an in an ideal world, yes. All I'm well, saying I'm is like it's
0: not an ideal world. They're pretty like racist, right wing <laughs> government, but they've had this this cooperative municipally owned electric grid since the last century well into the last century
1: Uh, what i was pushing back on is this idea of like well if we get solar panels and batteries we don't need the electric grid so so it's a survivalist and you're saying that doesn't help
0: everybody that's not but what if you had pods what if you had communal pods just because of hacking and the dangers and the electricity that's lost on a grid sending it through transmission wires distances don't you lose some
1: you lose a little not not a lot uh yeah, I think like having resiliency and sort of grids within grids. Built but you're in,
0: saying have protection, have backup. Yeah, so I there's think that's disasters, of, we help each other.
1: Yeah, I think that's more of a you you having those micro grids within the grid is is definitely a really good thing for. For resiliency, absolutely. But
0: I took your rabbit hole down on that just because you know so much more than I do. I was really interested to hear about it. Steve Winter and Alder from 21st Ward, where there is electricity and there is a grid. <laughs> talking here on Dateline, New Haven, about all the ways that his um, national and statewide activism has played into his roles in Alder in addition to the nuts and bolts, grassroots um, attention he pays to problems at individual constituents' homes. Criminal justice system, that's how he first came on the scene in New Haven with down downtown town and uh, and community policing and accountability how, how have you uh, felt that being at Alders helped you with that do you feel we're in a good place did we handle this Randy Cox um, mistreatment issue right is the department in a good place do you think
1: yeah I think one of the issues I was really interested in coming on the board of Alders was the civilian review board and Ooh, that's
0: been a little bit of a cluster now.
1: yeah I think like in the plus column the review board was set up. Uh, it's, you know, it's voiced its opinion on uh, disciplinary actions. The chief, they've had
0: some great reports by the way we found out about some instances we wouldn't have found out about with some really good debates.
1: Yeah. So I think like there's, there's definitely value in it. I know some of the folks on the board, they're really committed. They're doing really good work. I think that there's much more work to do, more follow on work to do, uh,
0: is there still that problem? Like it, the reason it got defunct the, the first time around was because people just weren't showing up to meetings, and then spots weren't filled. I know some people quit because there were personality problems and and time pressures. Are we getting enough meetings? Enough people? Is there enough time for people to work on this?
1: I th- I think that that is still a challenge. I think they're still functioning, but I think that is that is a challenge. And uh, you know, I also think there's been questions raised about what's the what's the purview of. Uh, of the crb can it really do its own investigations and to me that legislative intent was really clear when we yeah. set it up that yeah. that's like you know task number one uh but the city doesn't see it that way and so i think like there's a need to reconvene the uh folks from the crb and the board and and work on resolving so that. you
0: remember my grumpy old man uh been here way too long feeling about the whole thing is that the police commission already has subpoena powers. 1977, right. they did the best in independent investigation policing in the history of the city, which was the legal wiretapping case. You have to have the political will. You have to have commissioners who are empowered and capable of being independent investigators of the police. But they already have more power than CRB will ever have. They're allowed to investigate. They have access to do it, and they have legal subpoena power. And they already have one group of people who are asking to show up to meetings, and they generally do but they're not always the right people to be tough on the police, although we have some excellent people right now. Why wouldn't we want that to just become the CRB or a committee of the police commission with that subpoena power?
1: Yeah, I think I think it gets down to this idea of like uh, this independent review board and seeing that there's a, a value in this independent review board. But
0: why can't board. that be independent too? In both cases, they're appointed by politicians. Right, alders and mayor appoint the CRB. Alders and mayor—I mean, mayor appoints the, but elected by the people. The police commission. So.
1: Right. Yeah, and then that goes through the board of alders. I—I am I, not saying that the one approach is necessarily better than the other, hmm. but I do think. So you're when, not a
0: cranky old man. It says to be one way the way it used to be, and it shouldn't change. And all these young people with their new ideas should just like do the way it's always been done.
1: I mean, I think when we set up the CRB, that I thought that was one of its main main charges. So I yeah. think we, I, I think it would be good to follow through on that.
0: So you did um, follow through on one of your constituents, and Guy Robinson wanted to dedicate a corner. The corner was sitting at this very minute, Steve Winter. Orange and Elm, we have been on the air about this. You wanted to name a corner after the first black woman to live in New Haven, Lucretia. And what happened? Did you convince your colleagues? Is it going to happen?
1: Yeah, the board, board was very supportive of this. Uh, we had a hearing at the City Services and Environmental Policy Committee, and the full board passed it. Uh, at the beginning of the month
0: uh, so that's good and actually i did know the answer because you brought in the mock-up of what it's going to look like today into the studio what when, when is it going to go up
1: i don't know yet it's, look, it's looking like early next year uh, and you get a lot of
0: satisfaction from that how does that figure into the into the frame of mind of steve winters who works very hard at both constituent service big issues this is symbolic how does it what's the value you feel from the work you put into this
1: so I like to ride my bike a lot and uh, I like going up and down the canal trail. And one of the things I love most is the work that uh, Mayor Harp and Alder Morrison did to have the statue of William Lanson installed yeah, on the canal yeah. line. Yeah. It's wonderful. And I think that, that that type of symbol is hugely important in terms of like the public sto- the, the way that we use public space to tell a story. Like those and, great
0: um, Ninth Square and the sidewalks, the yeah, plaques, the, the people the, who worked and the, lived there. The, over star,
1: the stars of fame. I, th- I think that's wonderful. And I think that it says something about who we are as a city and how we tell our own story. In whose and lives what, we value. Yeah, and what we value. Yeah, and so I'm when, with you on that. Steve. When Dr. Robinson said she, wa- she wanted to tell a story about a woman named Lucretia, who was the first uh, black person to live in New Haven. She was a slave of the colonial governor the first governor Theop. i never get this one right theophilus eaton
0: uh that's a tongue twister
1: yeah and she she helped manage <laughs> <Theophilus>. his, <laughs> his household right here on the corner of orange and elm uh you know it was different because it was it's not in my ward right it's in a totally different ward so we had to check in with alder sabin and alder guzney they were very supportive and helped with the petition how are you the gathering. one because she's <laughs> your constituent yeah, so all, uh, Dr. Robinson is your constituent. My constituent.
0: Um, Steve, um, Charter visit is coming up first time in ten years. Your first bite it is in alder. Are you? Uh, I understand the board majority is it, or just the mayor and the president want to now move to a four year term, which is something that was quashed ten years ago. The last time we had a chance to revise our, our charter. What do you think about that?
1: I think that's. A, I think it's a four year term for mayor.
0: Yeah, yeah, not alder. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I think it's a good thing. I, I really do uh you you know you always hear about like our members of congress who have to spend all this time on the phone fundraising and working on the next election every two years uh the the like life cycle is is really short to actually be focused on just doing the work of think about whoever. how tony
0: Harp could have done if she didn't feel a need not that you have to say you have to do this but she wouldn't raise taxes one year because was running free elections 2017 so then it all got piled up all the debt and she raised it 11% the next year. And that was a killer. I mean, that ended yeah, her career. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think that I think that a longer, yeah, I think a, a longer term view, <laughs> a longer term could lead to a longer term view. Uh-huh. And, uh, I also think like it's, it's, exu- it's a kind of exhaust, not, not exhausting, but it's a lot to have these elections every other year for mayor. Um, so I think that I do think that is, a but alder's
0: remain too, two, and tell me your thinking on that. Every two years you elect an alder.
1: I think that still makes sense. Uh, it's more about the like local, responsive sort of like House of Representatives flavor. So it kind of
0: gives the constituents someone that that it represents just a smaller part of the city you can get to know and weigh in. One thing Steve medico advises cities on charters an argument he mentioned was made in Hamden. They tried it again. This time it worked to get a four year mayor it was people are concerned that legislators and then through them, their constituents would have less power. Let's say a branch is less powerful than the mayor. But they said that the actually you get more power because every two years you're a Chuck on the mayor. If the mayor's not running in that two years later, you're all there is or your council person in Hamden and they hear from their constituents if there needs to be a course correction.
1: Yeah. It's a tighter feedback loop. And mm-hmm. The those alder people or council people will be able to go back to the mayor after that election and say like, here's what we're hearing about what you're doing well and what you're not doing well, what we need to do differently. So I I I agree with that.
0: How do you feel running every two years? Uh, I know it was exciting for you at first because you got on your bike, you met all these people. Yeah, it's wonderful connections. It get tiring.
1: It yeah, it's it's a lot. I mean, it's amazing. There are folks who have been on the board for far longer than I have, and far longer. You know decade or more and they're they're doing this every other year, you know? Every other year. And you
0: really put your time in. I mean you do the newsletter, you show up at so many community meetings. As we said, your plumber's wrench shaped district meant that you had to be in all these different (laughs) places. You know? Are you getting tired it burnt out or what do you think? How many hours a week you put in? Uh
1: I don't know. It's 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 a lot of work. I really commend everybody on the board for the commitment, the energy that folks put in has
0: your view of the role evolved over these five years do you think differently or in a new way about what it means to be an older the value how you should do it the role
1: uh i think yeah i mean i think like the longer you're around the more it's about like choosing choosing which issues you really want to prioritize knowing that you're going to be stretched thin with all these other issues uh what what do you really want to push on and where do you
0: push because like we've noticed in the last since twenty eleven, there's almost no debate on the floor of the board of alders anymore. Matter of fact, you tried to raise debate about the money given to Rabbi Daniel Greer, and you were shut down. You were told you're not allowed to give a dissenting view at a public forum. What has that meant for the ability to affect issues? Is that an, not an important place to have the debate anyway? Does that take more between closed doors or in a committee?
1: Well, I think there's some. I think there is debate at the board of alders at like the full board meetings. Uh, I think sometimes there are guardrails put on those conversations. But I think a lot of the a lot of the substance really does take place at the committee meetings. And, and that's, that's public. Imp- yeah. yeah, and that's totally public. And I think it's that's really important for anyone who's interested in local issues to understand that if you if you wanna influence the decision making process, really try to get involved at the committee level, come to the meetings and testify. Or, or get in touch with the committee chair before the meeting, let them know what you think about what's on the agenda. And can, it can be hard to keep track of all of that, but the city has, to its credit, put all you know, put all these meetings on the website. I always found board alderman
0: committees sort of the most exciting part of democracy. Now you know, that makes me a nerd. Because we really talk about important stuff, and you do get all walks of life about stuff that matters, to, and city officials having to answer questions about stuff that matters. It feels like democracy to me. Yeah, I think I mean there's... what do you think about the state democracy having been in alder for five years? Do we have it in New Haven? You feeling good about it after being an alder for five years?
1: Yeah, I think that I think that the participation at the committee level can be really valuable and that folks on the committee can learn things or can shape their views and that the public has an opportunity to weigh in. Uh you know, I think I think you know, thinking about the charter revision and uh like the state of democracy in New Haven I mean, I think that the the uh, citizens' elections program is is a valuable a valuable piece of uh, mm-hmm. our democratic machinery here. And we're talking about to uh, make some
0: changes to it, right? There was a vote last night at Democracy Fund.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, but I think yeah, I do think it's worth talking about. Having fewer aldermanic districts, and I don't know oh, is
0: that going to come up this year? I don't know that it will, but' the I think... never put this matter the <laughs> argument is yeah, some people like having thirty because it's good if everyone represents three people, in your case stretched out in a plumber's wrench because right. then you get to know them. other people feel like the olds would have more power if there were fewer of them, like in Hartford because you represent more people and you can't be so easily put off of the sidewalk because your vote counts more
1: yeah I think. 30 is is such a, such a large number for a community of our size. Mm -hmm. Um, and if, if you're a city staff person having to respond to 30 different alders, that's a, that's just a big challenge.
0: Is it more democracy or less?
1: I, I think in some ways it's more democracy because it's, Folks in, th- in theory are more accessible, but I think if you had smaller districts, you could still have that same level have access. So, is had... there is there
0: going to be a proposal suggested in charter revision for fewer districts?
1: I I doubt it, but I think it's I think it's worth I do think it's worth raising the issue, uh, and I think that like you said, it would help those alders focus their energy more, uh, and I think that we may have you might have more uh, contested elections, which is something that like. An incumbent legislator might not be talking about, but I think that that's that's really important in terms of increasing our local participation in elections. So,
0: Steve Winter, you having fun still?
1: Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been really fun being involved in the city.
0: Well, it's very fun when you come in here and talk to us because you got your finger kind of in everything instant going <laughs> on in the city. So I really appreciate, and I also love your younger perspective. I kind of feel like you help me see things through new eyes. So thanks for coming on Dateline New Haven, Alder Steve thanks Winter. Thanks for having me on. I want to thank Harry Droz, who's the miracle man behind the controls, has us on so many different platforms that they are inventing new multiverses in the course of every episode. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew, How It would Feel to Be Free, from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day, all night, and all weekend long at WNHH New Haven's home for Community Radio.